Before we get started this week with Brent, um, I called Daniel and, and Ephraim up here as well. Um, six, just over six years ago, uh, the Lord had laid it on our hearts to start a family fellowship here on Saturday mornings. And one of the, one of the key things that we wanted to do and we felt like God was telling us to do was that we were to go and get the blessings of the existing congregations in the area. Um, not that we needed it, um, but we felt like it was important for us to do that. And there's not a congregation, there's not a Saturday church, a Sabbath church in the Oklahoma City area that doesn't tie back to the roots of one specific church and really one man, one man who was anointed with the power of the Holy Spirit to be a pioneer in this city uh, who loved well. And last night uh, he passed away of a heart attack and a fall. Um, Charles Stallsworth, the founder and the leader of Bedemy in Oklahoma City, is now with his Lord. And so um, we just wanted to honor him today. Uh, he never was able to come and, and grace this pulpit, even though we had asked. It never lined up. But uh, there's a lot of love for that man. And in any church you step foot in in this area, that is messianic, somehow had the influence of this man. And so we just want to pay honor today before Brent teaches um, to a man who, who fought hard, who fought well, and taught me how to love more than I ever knew how to love before. And so may Charles' name always be for a blessing. May his memory be for a blessing. And uh, if you guys wouldn't mind, keep, keep his grandchildren, keep the congregation a bed of me, keep his wife Miriam in your prayers. Um, this was unexpected. And so during this time of grieving, um, we just need to come together as a body and really just lift them in prayer. So if you would, please remember to do that. And, uh, we want to honor Charles today. So, Brent. I'm not sure exactly what year it was. It seems like forever ago. But a friend of mine had uh, purchased tickets to go to a bed of me Passover Seder. And for some reason, he was unable to go. And so he provided those tickets to me so that I could go. And as it turns out, uh, that was the first messianic, you know, believing in Yeshua Passover Seder that I ever attended. And it was conducted by Charles Stallsworth. And so I am very thankful uh, because, as Chris said, I probably wouldn't be standing here today if I hadn't sat there at the table with him so many years ago. And I'm so very thankful for that. Well, I am excited to begin a series, and uh, I have to tell you, I'm not exactly, uh, it's kind of like the World Series where you're not really sure how long it's going to go depending on who wins and who loses. I'm not sure exactly how long this series is going to go, but I have always been intrigued with the subject of the ascension of Yeshua the Messiah when Jesus ascended to heaven. As a kid, I always thought of all the things the disciples saw, 
This was by far one of the coolest things. Now, maybe it's because as a kid you grow up on comic books and Saturday cartoons. I know I just dated myself. But uh, watching superheroes and having those conversations, well, which super uh, power would you like to have? And for me, in my mind, it was, there was never any question. I wanted to fly. And so the whole backdrop of Yeshua suddenly saying bye-bye and ascending into the clouds is just a really cool thing. And so I've always been really, really intrigued with it because it's not just a comic book and it's not just a story. It actually happened. And so I have to begin with a question that I've had for a long time, and that is simply, if it's such an incredible moment, why is it so talked about so little in the body of Christ? And I, I don't mean that to demean anybody or any church. Listen, I'm a, a preacher's kid. I listened to my father. He pastored for 35 years, and I'm sure he preached on it. I just don't really remember it ever being focused on as something that had immediate relevant application to my life. It was a really cool thing where Jesus went to heaven and started ministering on my behalf, but I, I didn't fully understand just how significant that moment really is. Maybe it's because, um, to be honest, in the Gospels, only two of the Gospel writers actually include it in the narrative, the story that they're telling. And, and, and really very briefly, Mark chapter 16, verse 19, Mark says, so then when the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was received up to, into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. As we say in Israel, Zeo, that's it. Enough said. Luke gives us four verses anyway, when he writes, and he, let, and he then led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they, after worshiping him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they were continually in the temple praising God. Now, Luke is going to revisit this event with a little bit more detail in Acts chapter 1, but because it's a series, I'm going to wait to get to that particular passage but uh, to me, this is just, again, one of the most amazing things that happened in the life of Jesus. Now, again, when Luke revisits in Acts chapter 1, he's going to talk to us about what Yeshua was doing for the 40 days from his resurrection to the day he ascends up into heaven. And he tells us very clearly he was teaching them about the kingdom of God. But for now, let me stress just one thing that I hold to be absolutely true. Without the ascension of Jesus, none of what he did prior to that mattered. In fact, everything that he has promised to us hinges on him fulfilling the purpose of the ascension. And so we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about it from the Old Testament, from the New Testament. We're going to look at why is this, this thing so important and the reason that it wouldn't matter is simply because the story would not be complete. And his ministry to us and for us would not be complete. Now, I'm not the only one captivated by this moment in Jesus' life. 
As it turns out, it was so pivotal that it also captured the heart of one who wasn't even there to see it, but it lurks in the background of almost everything he writes when he's instructing the churches on God's plan for them. And I'm talking about Shaul of Tarsus, Paul of the Apostle Paul. He was a man completely taken by this event. So this morning, I'm going to ask you to turn first with me to a passage that uh, the minute I'm going to say it, you're going to probably, those of you who have been here before, going, oh no, again? Yeah, again and again and again and again. Ephesians chapter 1. And as you turn there, let me just tell you, no one's more surprised that we're back there than me. This is not where I expected to be when I felt the Lord leading me to teach and preach on the ascension. I want to begin by reading chapter 1, beginning verse 15 through verse 23. And as we do so, I want you to know this is going to be one of our first glimpses in this book of how captivated by the ascension Paul actually is. For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus that in, which exists among you and your love for all the saints, I do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of, the, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe. All of this is in accordance with the working of his might, which he brought about in Messiah when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is named not only in this age, but in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. We pray with me. Master, we come before you today because you are the one who has ascended above all rule, power, and authority. You are the one that has received from the Father that which we seek from your hand and your heart today. That you would pour out, even as our brother Chris has asked for in prayer, that you would pour out a fresh spirit upon us, awaken your presence within us. Father, we ask, I ask in Jesus' name for every believer in this room today that you would give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that even if we weren't thinking about it before we came, that you would awaken and quicken our hearts and spirits to want to have that revelation and understanding of who he is. Because I believe you always do what you say you'll do. I thank you in advance for the hearts and the minds that will be enlightened today, not because of me, but because of your faithfulness declared in your word. I pray these things in the mighty name of Yeshua. Amen. So earlier in the year, I started off 
with a message that basically said this, that we need to begin to decide that what God has already decided to do for us, we need to decide that we believe that. God has already decided to do way more, to be honest, than we have been allowing him to do in us. The problem is not on his end. The problem is in our end. And maybe it rests in the fact that we don't fully comprehend what it meant for Yeshua to ascend into heaven. My prayer is that by studying the ascension and what it actually reveals, we may finally begin, I may finally begin to allow him to release the gifts that he has already decided to give me and to walk in a more, a fuller expression of what that means. And I honestly, I know this, you're like, man, how are you gonna connect all this? The ascension shows us that Jesus is the one in charge of pouring out that which we need for our lives. And this is a perfect season for us to be focusing on this season or on these things, why? Because today we find ourselves just five days away from the 40th day of the counting of the Omer. Now, if you're new to that, that just simply means the counting from the day of the resurrection to the day of Shavuot or Pentecost. Next Wednesday night and Thursday, we will have come to that 40th day when the book of Acts says that Yeshua ascended to heaven from the Mount of Olives in full view of his disciples. There are three events that factor into everything that Paul is trying to help us understand about what Messiah has done and is doing for us right now. The first is the resurrection of Jesus from out of the grave from the dead. The second is the ascension of Jesus from the earth into heaven. And the third is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the promise of God, which he has received from the Father to pour out upon us. These three events are critically important. Now, this is one of those places where understanding the feast of the Lord really begins to unlock our minds and thought process of what the biblical authors are trying to show us. Let me show you exactly what I mean. Look at verse chapter one of Ephesians verse 19. Now, if you know what was the real, what was really going on on the day Yeshua was resurrected, it was the feast of, come on church, first fruits. Listen to what he says. And what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe these are in accordance with the working of his might, which he brought about in the Messiah when first event, first fruits, he raised him from the dead. Second event, he seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. Now, if you understand the concept of the feast of first fruits, the first feast of first fruits, and then the latter feast of first fruits, you just know that he just drew your attention to the first fruits, which is an offering. And there's something that we need to look into to understand that. Notice that it says far above all rule and authority, power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but the one that is to come. So whatever is going on in that period not only affects the past, it affects our present and it affects our future. So many times when we study the gospels, we spend so much time in the then and the Later, we forget about what Messiah is doing right now. It's as if, well, he, he did that for us then. He's going to do some great things for us eventually. But, you know, right now, I'm just kind of existing. And I know you, no one wants to say, uh-huh, amen. I, but that's the way we live. 
We sometimes just feel like a pinball, just kind of getting you know, knocked around in life, and we don't feel like this great victor that the Bible says that we can be because of what he has done and where he has ascended. Notice Paul is praying for us. Well, first of all, why do I say the Feast of First Fruits? Because the first, the first First Fruits offering uh, is offered on the divinely appointed day when the first fruits of the barley harvest are presented to God as a wave offering. That's the day Yeshua comes out of the grave. That's the day the priests have collected the first fruits of the barley harvest, made them into sheaves, have taken them in the temple, and they're waving them before God. They are presenting, please key into this, they are presenting a gift to God. It's an offering of the first fruits. When he seated him in the heavenly places, that occurs on the second first fruits, which is Shavuot. Some people, I mean, I know growing up in the church, I never learned this, but those of you who've been in the Messianic movement for any length of time probably know this very well, that there's more than one first fruits. There's the day he was resurrected, and there's the day that he poured out the Holy Spirit. And the Bible says that at that time, all things are put in subjection, meaning all things are given over to him. Now, now remember, our, my whole purpose in this is not just to get you fired up about what he's going to do eventually, but what he's doing right now. And understanding that all things have been given to him now helps me understand that he has everything I need, not just for the sweet by and by, but for the right now. Sometimes when I'm clamoring to just get by. Notice that Yeshua is given as head over all things. And notice the phraseology, to the church. Everything that the Lord gives to Yeshua, everything, this fullness that, that he is encompassed with, it is for the purpose so that he can give things to you and to me as the body of Christ. This is going to make more sense when we get a little further in. That means the Messiah has been given all things so that he can give me all things. Remember Romans chapter 8? He who has delivered over us for us all, will he not then give to us all things that we need? Now, I'm just going to be real honest with you because... When I preach, a lot of what I preach is part of my own spiritual journey, and this is something I'm learning. I'm going to be honest with you. I didn't live last week as if all things were mine. Oh, I had some good moments, but I had some of those other moments where I wanted to whine and complain because I didn't feel like I had what I needed, and that was never true. Amen? Come on, church. Talk to me. Whenever you feel that God hasn't given you what you need, is that ever true? No. It's a lie. It's a false emotion appearing real. It's fear of something that doesn't exist. And what doesn't exist, God is never unfaithful. The one who has it all is the only one who can give it all, and the Father gave it to him to give to us. 
Now, before we proceed with Paul's exciting letter, we must go back to a passage that really is going to frame. It's in the back of his mind, and quite honestly, it's changing the way I understand what is going on in Paul's heart and mind as he writes this letter. Turn with me, if you have your Bibles, to Psalm 68. And we're going to see all of this was prophesied by King David in song. And since we read it, Sarah read it so beautifully at the beginning of the service, that was inspired, it just went all over me. All I'm going to call your attention to is the primary passage I want you to look at, which is verse 18. You have ascended on high. You have led captives Captives. Now, the New American Standard says you have led captive your captives. They kind of insert the your there. It's a little iffy. You have received gifts among men, even among the rebellious also, and the Lord God, that the Lord God may dwell there. This passage is really interesting. It would, be, it would be extremely interesting, even if it weren't cited in the New Testament by Paul, but it's interesting for a, a few reasons. The Jewish understanding of this verse is that it refers to Moses and the collection of the Terumah, the offerings that are going to be received to build the tabernacle so that the Lord can dwell among his people. And I think that's a completely legitimate first-level interpretation of what this means. But the terminology in this passage is curious, if not mysterious. First of all, it ties the gathering of the captives to his ascension on high. And you really have to kind of wrangle your context to, to try to force that onto just the Moses-Israel story at Sinai. Though there are some parallels that can be made, it just seems like there's more being said there. Secondly, how exactly do you lead captivity captive or captives captives? I mean, back in verse 6 in the very same psalm, David writes, he leads out the prisoners into prosperity. Now, I can get behind that. Now, that makes perfect sense to me. I once was bound. I once was poor. Now I'm free. Lead me in prosperity. Amen. Come on, bring it, Jesus. But what is, but then Paul's or then David's writing that he's going to lead captives into captivity or he's going to take captivity cap what in the world does this terminology even mean and by the way I don't mind having to struggle with it because quite honestly in my study so do the rabbis it's some strange terminology it's much easier for me to understand verse 6. That's plain as day, leading captives into prosperity. So why does David suddenly turn around and say it like this? Thirdly, he then says that you, God, received gifts. Now, if it, it would be easy if he just wrote in Hebrew, from men. Then we could easily tie it to the teruma that was gathered from among the people and, and say this has to do with the offering that was taken to build the tabernacle so that God might dwell there. And that, that's a first level understanding and, and a historical, and I accept it. But you can't get there easily from the Hebrew. Because what it actually says is 
He doesn't really say that he received gifts from men because David writes he receives gifts be Adam in man. What? Even in Hebrew, there are plenty of prepositions to make this sentence make a whole lot more sense from men. Well, David, come on. I mean, I don't know. Did it rhyme in Hebrew? You know, it was a song. Maybe it was just trying... Taking a little poetic, I don't, be Adam? I'm not mocking, I'm just trying to get you to realize that first level historical understanding, while it may be true, it's not arrived at easily. You have to wrestle with the text. While it's easy for our minds to race to the offering of the tabernacle, the language seems to be pointing to something even beyond that. David writes, even among the rebellious, God God has done this. Well, back in the rest of verse six, he says, only the rebellious, only the rebellious will dwell in a parched land. But now in extolling the victory of the one who's led captivity, captives or captives captivity, he celebrates the goodness of God that even the rebellious are cared for by God. He received gifts for the tabernacle from men who quite honestly were not worthy to have him dwell in their presence as if any of us are. And so David is extolling the mercy and the grace of God that even among the rebellious, God has has received this thing so that he might dwell with them. And the biggest mystery of all, that the Lord God may dwell among them, with them, Earlier in the Torah, when he, and when he tells them to build, take the offering, you know, the languages that I may dwell among them, but the Hebrew can easily be read that I might dwell in them. Was God's plan only to dwell among us or to dwell within us? And the answer is yes. Come on, say it with me. Yes. That answer will get you out of a lot of theological arguments. Because sometimes it's not either or, it's in the majesty and the mystery of God's revelation that the answer is yes. This passage is amazing in the Hebrew and filled with mysteries, but this is the passage that Paul uses to connect our hearts and minds to the ascension of Jesus Christ and everything that it means for us today. Again, we are so prone to the then and the later instead of the now. But here, Paul is going to take this passage and make it completely about the now. Listen as Paul references the passage in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, being diligent to keep the unity of the spirit of the bond of peace. For there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called uh, in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father uh, of us all who is over all and through all and in all. Are are you catching a theme there? But then verse 7. But to each one of us, grace, 
Kairos, power, gifting, was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Christ's gift? What do you mean Christ's gift? Therefore, it says, and now Paul is going to quote from Psalm 68, verse 18. When he ascended on high, he led captive the captives, and he gave gifts to people or to men. Now, this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all heavens so that he might fill all things. Wow. That, Paul does something amazing here. And if you're paying attention, you'll notice that Paul's citation of Psalm 6818 is not exactly like the Hebrew translation of 6818. Why is that? Because Psalm 6818 in your Bible is translated from the Masoretic text, which was kind of compiled and completed around 400 years after the time of Christ. Paul is quoting from the Septuagint. The Greek translation, what I call the beauty of Japheth translation, that was composed of translators translating the Old Testament Hebrew into Greek. And that's what Paul is quoting. And I, and I want you to know that Paul is not doing anything with this text that is absolutely alien to what other Jewish people have done with this text. The, the uh, Aramaic Peshitta text does some of the very same things. Some of the oldest uh, targums, which are paraphrases of the text in Hebrew, also do some of the very same things that Paul is doing. I say that because there's always some in the movement that are like, you know, the minute anything is Greek, it's pagan. I, I literally saw it again on, the, on Facebook this week, someone saying his name isn't Jesus. And folks, I'm going to say it again. It's Greek grammar. Matthias, Marcos, Lucas, Paulos, Timotheos. Do you hear something similar in all those names? They all conform to Greek grammar, which puts the sigma on the end of a word that ends with a vowel in another language. That's how Yeshua ends with an S. Jesus in Greek. There's no conspiracy here. Just Greek grammar. Sorry for that sidebar. It just rubs me wrong. <laughs> because it takes our, our, here Paul is doing something amazing because we're not going to discard the beauty of the Hebrew language. We're going to add to it the beauty of Japheth and how Paul uses that. And so Paul, the inspired apostle, is going to give us what I consider to be what we need to accept as the interpretation. Now, there's two things that I want to say before we get to that interpretation. The first is this. Remember that as Paul is writing this letter to the Ephesians, he's doing it from prison. Secondly, Paul repeatedly refers to himself as a prisoner. Chapter 3, verse 1, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of the Gentiles. 
Ephesians 4 verse 1, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. The stage is set for Paul, are you with me now? For Paul to be the captive. I've said this here before and I'm going to say it again. Paul is a prophet of paradigm, which means that like the Old Testament prophets, his life becomes the message. Okay, he, he, he's going, just like Ezekiel had to do these dramatic things and other prophets, Paul is going to live out the message he professes. He has become a captive for who? The Gentiles. Why do the Gentiles need an example of someone who's a captive? Because the Exodus isn't their history. They need to understand that what God did for Israel when he took the captives captive, he will do for them as well. And Paul's there to be the living, breathing example of that for them. Does that make sense? His life is going to be the manifestation of the very thing he's trying to tell them. Paul says, I'm a prisoner. Man, I just wish that when people translated the Bible, that they would recognize that Paul has a train of thought and they would use the same words so that we could maybe draw that line and keep that thread going. My friends, what is a prisoner? A prisoner is a captive. Paul is celebrating the one who ascended, who led captivity, captive or captives, cap, I can't even say it, captives, captivity, you know what I'm saying. If you don't, ask your neighbor. I always used to think that Paul was constantly referring to himself as a prisoner because he was. But in truth, Paul is not bemoaning being a prisoner at all. Paul isn't frustrated that he's a prisoner for Christ because he's so thrilled to be a prisoner, a captive of Christ. What can men do to him? I've already been taken captive by the one who led me out of captivity. Well, that just seems kind of ironic, doesn't it? except I am captivated by his love. I am held captive in his embrace. And there's a reason. And we're going to blend these, the Hebrew and the Greek, we're going to blend this beautiful understanding. Why does this cause him to rejoice? Well, let's go back to first fruits. Because we are the gifts Presented to God by Yeshua. Now, I, I need to go back to that Hebrew terminology in, in the Hebrew text. The terminology there, when it starts talking about captives, it, it's terminology that has to do with somebody, well, basically, the spoils of war. You're a captive because somebody captured you, conquered you, someone, you know, won the battle, and therefore you are now a part of the spoils that they take with them. That's who we are. 
And that's why Paul is celebrating. Why? Because we are the ones that the conqueror is now going to present to the Father. We're the spoils of the victory he has won. We are the first fruits, one purchased and redeemed by his blood. Yeshua ascended into heaven to do in heaven what was being done on earth in the temple to wave the first fruit offering before the Lord. And please hear this as a gift to God. We are Yeshua's gift to the Father. We are the captives that he, he purchased so that he could present us to God. Wow. I don't know how y'all can be so quiet. Because, man, I'm loving this. I mean, we're just a few weeks away from Father's Day. Hmm. But before he could do that, he had to descend. Now the expression, he ascended, what does it mean? Except that he also descended into the lowest parts of the earth. He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all things so that he might fill all things. What is Paul trying to tell us? Satan wanted to ascend where Jesus was destined to reign. He got cast out. And so what did he want to do? He wanted to drag the apple of God's eye, the children that he loved. He wanted to drag us to the depths, the deepest depths where God couldn't get him. But Jesus descended to the lowest of the lows to rescue us, to redeem us. We are the spoils of his victory. Not even Satan can keep us. He, 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 he went to the lowest low. The context of Paul's captive prisoner terminology, the reason he does this is that we would understand when you are a prisoner of Christ, you are fully enabled, filled to the capacity to be a prisoner for Christ. And if I can be a prisoner for Christ, then I can also live in freedom with Christ. Amen? There's a reason for why Paul blends this beautiful imagery of the Hebrew and the Greek translations. We were prisoners, and you were dead in your offenses and your sins in which you previously walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of the disobedient. Among them, we too all previously lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh of the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, just as the rest, may I paraphrase, we were prisoners, held captive by the greatest enemy, death. But God, oh, let me say it again, but God, because of his great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our wrongdoings, made us alive, even when we were the rebellious ones in the wilderness. Even when we were dead in our wrongdoings, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And here we go again. Paul's going to take us right back to the ascension and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the ages to come, he might show the boundless riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Wow. He has raised us up. Where did he seat Jesus? High above 
There is, now Paul knows something a lot of us don't know, that there's this whole teaching in Judaism about all the levels of heaven, the different heavens. Now Paul understands all that, and I don't recommend you getting into all that, but Paul has some understanding of it, because the Bible says, whatever those levels are, Yeshua is so high above them that every power, every authority, every name that is named in any of those levels, below or beneath, mean nothing in comparison to his name. He is above all. Well, how did he get there? Paul says, because he descended to free us. But God being rich in mercy, wow. Not only were we the gifts given to the Father by Yeshua, but we are now the recipients of the gifts given by the Father to Yeshua to give us. This is what Paul is trying to tell us, and this is why we can take the beautiful understanding of the Hebrew and the Greek and understand what Paul is trying to say us, because Paul is going to translate that passage as, and he gave gifts to the church. Now, I'm no Paul, but I'm going to go with his interpretation. Not just because I like it, because I do, but because it's right. As I said, we're a few weeks away from a non-biblical holiday, Father's Day. And everybody be running around trying to figure out the perfect gift for dad. Well, what do you give the father who already literally has everything? You give them the children he loves. And that is what Yeshua did. He left heaven and descended, not just to earth. I mean, that was amazing enough that he would come and tabernacle among us, but he didn't just stop there. He allowed them to take his life, and he descended to the lowest part. And then he came forth on the Feast of first fruits as the first fruits of the resurrection, guaranteeing the greater harvest. And then he ascended into heaven. And what did he give his father? What did God want? He wanted you. He wanted his sons and daughters. And because Jesus paid the price, he led us, even though we were in captivity, he captured us with his love and presented us to the Father. So that, as we will study in the days to come, the Father would give to him it because you have brought me the gifts of men. I give you the gift of myself, all of me, to give to all of them.
I don't know about you, but right now, that should change the way I walk out of these doors. Right now, I need to believe that he's not sitting in heaven twiddling his thumbs, but he is doing what he has promised to do. Before I got up to preach this morning, I said, Lord, I'm not going to ask you in my heart for you to pour out the Holy Spirit. You've already promised to do that. I'm going to celebrate what you're going to do in this message. Not because I'm clever, not because whatever, but because your word is true. We're going to have a benediction. We're going to have a blessing. And you're, you and I, we have the same choice. We either walk out of here the same way we walk in, or we walk out of this place today going, <laughs> the only thing the Father wanted was me. And Yeshua made that happen. Walk in the fullness of all things that he has promised. And you will begin to change this community forever. Amen. If we could all rise, please.